The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. And on the line, former Western Victoria MP Simon Ramsey, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Mitchell, and good morning to your listeners. Well, first of all, what a shame that you were busy two weeks ago, right in the midst of that Liberal leadership challenge. Well, I was. Um, as you know, I was somewhat distracted by my long-term goal of um, getting a motorbike licence. And you got it, so I, did you? I, I've got the permit, learner's permit, so um, I've been shopping for a helmet and uh, looking at some old second-hand bikes, but... I did uh, listen to the radio in between our two-day course just to keep up to speed with what was happening in the uh, Victorian Liberal Parliamentary team uh, going on. Mm-hmm. And what did you think of it? Well, I don't think it was unexpected, was it? Uh, I think Brad Batten uh, put up the flag initially just to test the water to see how much support there would be for a change in leadership, except he did... Uh, forget to mention to some of his colleagues that he was going to make a run for the leader uh, in the party parliamentary room. But I think, you know, there has been a systematic approach to Matthew Guy's um, elevation to the leadership during the, the sort of the last five or six months. I think it, the, uh, the sort of the people reading the tea leaves saw that Michael O'Brien wasn't making any significant inroads uh, into... Um, holding the government to account but also putting out some policies that look positive and uh, a point of difference to what was happening in relation to the pandemic response. So I don't think it was any surprise to anyone. And, of course, the talent pool in the parliamentary team is pretty shallow, so there wasn't a lot of other potential contenders to replace Michael O'Brien, I guess, um, they took the view that uh, Matthew had the numbers uh, and would be given another shot at leading the uh, the uh, Victorian brand to the election in November next year. You've worked with both of them. Just wondering what your thoughts are on uh, Matthew Guy as the leader against Michael O'Brien. And also, what do you think the 2022 campaign might look like as opposed to what happened in 2018? Well, it was interesting. In fact, uh, Mitchell, I remember the... Um, the challenge to Ted Bailey, who I was a young budding MP then, fairly new into the parliamentary uh, team, and the party room meeting was quite surreal when that challenge was on back in March. Um, it was actually the day before my birthday. It was Dennis Napthine's birthday when he took over the leadership um, <laughs> during that time, and uh, it was quite surreal then. So I, I sort of know the machinations a bit of what goes on behind the scenes in respect to... Uh, party room challenges, but uh, Matthew's campaign um, back in t- 2018 was very much predicated on the success of uh, the election of Donald Trump. And, of course, we had a lot of Republican um, uh, party um, movers and shakers providing advice uh, to the parliamentary team in respect to how to identify and isolate um you know, those swinging voters, and that's why we developed that I360 um, uh, template, new technology to use on your phone to identify uh, the um, the swinging voters and then hone in on them rather than waste time on whether they're, you know, hard hard and fast uh, Labor or hard and fast Liberals. So it was, a, it was an interesting campaign based on the success of Donald Trump, 
but really didn't morph into our election process and the way that our system works. And I think that was the failure of the campaign, amongst a few other things. So, we won't be doing that again, I suspect. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to see how it plays out. And, of course, the next year or so is going to be key. And then this time next year we'll be leading up to that election in November. But, of course, before then there'll be a federal election. So how that plays out could also have an impact on the result. Well, that's true. And I, I guess um, um, you sort of you feel sorry for Scott Morrison sometimes, Prime Minister, because it seems whenever he has some good news, there's always bad news that follows very quickly. And I think there was some good news story, particularly in relation to the work that's been going on regarding uh, the um, the deal between the UK, US and Australia in respect to uh, defence capabilities, particularly with the growing influ- influence of uh, China. But, of course, uh, the, the whole process, the way that was handled in respect to uh, the nullifying of the... Uh, the, you know the contract with uh, with France in respect to the attack diesel electric submarines as to the new deal for the nuclear powered submarines and the way the, the the messaging was conveyed to our international partners in respect to what um, what was happening I thought it was just appalling. That initial submarine deal seemed problematic, though, didn't it? Because you've got the submarines coming in from France and it was going to take a very long time for them to be actually built here. And who knows what warfare technology may look like in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And I think that was the timeline that they were on. But also they were modifying these nuclear subs to make them diesel. And that, of course, comes with its own challenges and problems. Well, that's true. And I remember, you know, uh, Malcolm Turbill and Christopher Pine at the time I was defence minister was making a big play of this um, new uh, new deal with France to build these submarines. You know, our poor old uh, Collins class submarines raging, and um, there was quite a long lag time before the introduction of these supposed new diesel electric submarines. But um, my understanding, I know there's a lot of puff and puff about all of this, Mitchell. But you know, we have six submarines. I think six Collins class submarines is our total. Uh, submarine capacity here in Australia and uh, the there was a potential for eight diesel electric submarines to be made here through uh, the French connection and now we have potentially eight uh, nuclear powered submarines uh, through uh, whether it's through the UK or the US it's unclear uh, what what class submarine they'll be um, but with a I think a delivery date of the first one in 20 years out so when they talk about changes in technology therefore uh, there's uh, you know substance in changing the contractual arrangements well how do we know the technology uh, currently uh, used for these nuclear submarines are going to be current 20 years time where you know technology may well have changed again so it just seems a long lag time before delivery uh, when we've got six aging uh, Collins-class submarines running around the waters at the moment and not looking like being replaced for another 20 years. Well, you're reading a column, and I mentioned this in the first hour, really sort of summed it up for me. I mean, imagine being in 1938 in Europe and ordering your war equipment and not having it delivered until 1958. And, of course, in that time, there's been a whole world war that's been won and lost. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll be pushing up daisies. I know you're much younger than I am, but um, I suspect I won't have to worry about that, but my children will. But I assume I'll have to lease uh, some submarines in the interim. Or, um, But despite all of that, I think it's the process uh, that really you have to question the government's um, 
uh, ability to, um, you know, um, manage big projects. I, I just think the way they dealt with the French, and they've got an election coming up, and of course you'd expect the Prime Minister to be running around banging tables as the French do, but I just thought the whole process seemed very um, unprofessional. Now, Christian Porter, I also asked this in the first hour, but do you think he can actually come back? He resigned yesterday. He put a post up on his social media declaring his innocence, but it does seem like a lot of these politicians that stand down, they spend their time on the sidelines for one or two years and then come back. I mean, he's already said he wants to recontest his electorate of peers, so could he one day return back to the Cabinet? Well, I mean, there's a possibility. Look at Barnaby Joyce or Bridget McKenzie. I mean, there's a whole range of them that were absolutely crucified in their portfolios um, but managed to, uh, for some reason, be able to uh, cry credibility and and re-enter into the cabinet or shadow cabinets. Christian Paul is an interesting one. And I I did hear a bit of Tom Rowe's interview and I I was of the same view. I found him to be a um, very articulate, intelligent, smart political operative and I thought we'd go places but I just don't like the way he has um, dealt particularly with himself in respect to um, the charges of defamation and uh, this blind trust. I, I actually remember Mitchell him saying down the eye of a camera that he would be paying himself personally all the costs associated with his um, court case against the ABC and now it appears in the member's interest registry, he has put in that he has um, sought finance or, or was given finance, access to finance, to pay some of those costs for a blind trust but refuses to name um, the uh, the members of the trust. Now, that's just not on. If he thought he could get away with that, uh, I'm sorry, but my estimation of that man has gone down considerably. I just, um, he put the Prime Minister in an awkward spot. Uh, he put his... Uh, Cabinet ministers, colleagues in an awkward spot and really was pushed into resigning that post. But I can't see him rising out of that. There's also, uh, I think, a um, a police uh, inquiry at the moment uh, running currently in respect to other other matters. So, you know, I just think, you know, he's going to find it really difficult to reach those dizzy heights again of being a a senior minister in um, the government's uh, cabinet. Now, the COVID situation we find ourselves in, we're in lockdown in Geelong. This is lockdown number eight now. Hopefully it is only a week. John Aaron said before 10 that he was confident that it would be only a week. And it does seem like Barwon Health, the contact tracers down here do do a reasonable job because we haven't had major outbreaks down in this neck of the woods. Although when you look at those exposure sites, it does seem like there are recurring places like the Warren Ponds Shopping Centre precinct often appears to come up, as does areas of Newcombe. Well, that's true. In fact, I got caught up with the um, Ocean Grove uh, Coles supermarket as a uh, tier two exposure site and had to get tested and quarantine isolate uh, while I was waiting for my test. But it seems the senior manager came down from Melbourne and ran around uh, half a dozen coal stores and managed to, um, uh, you know, uh, I guess isolate, have to isolate those stores. So, I guess it just reminds us how careful we have to be in respect to abiding by the rules. I'm surprised the Coles management team aren't required to be regularly tested um, if they're moving between Melbourne and into regional areas. But um, I thought the system worked really well. Um, I got tested in Norlane, actually out in John Aaron's country, <laughs> in the Ballarat Health North uh, Medical Centre that we help fund. Um, oh, in Health North, yes. 
Yes, I think we put $33 million into that facility when we were in government. Uh, and uh, the system worked really well. I couldn't get in at South Bowen Reserve um, to get tested. It was a six-hour wait, as was the showground. So, um, you know, there's some issues when there are exposure sites, particularly around Geelong, to get access to a testing station in a short period of time. It's almost impossible. Um, but other than that, I, I, I found the experience good. The re- results certainly were returned within the 24 hours and I was able to carry on business. So I hope that continues. And uh, yes, Bowen Health do seem to be doing a good job in respect to their con- contact tracing. And uh, I thought the, the lockdown rules probably are fair enough, Mitchell. I think you agreed in your opening statements. I, I think the curfew I don't understand in Melbourne, and it's the only point of difference I can find between Liberal and Labor is that the Liberal Party is saying we should get rid of the curfews in Melbourne, um, but really don't offer any other, uh, you know, alternatives in respect to the current lockdown rules uh, and want to get the kids quicker back into the classroom, mm. which I also understand. But other than that, I think business from what I've seen and read just in the last 24 hours are generally accepted uh, that, you know, November the 5th is the date that we will um, get our large part of the freedoms and Christmas is when we'll get back to probably as normal as we can. I think it's one thing if there's cases in Mildura for us to lock down or cases in parts of Melbourne, but if there are cases on our doorstep here in Geelong and in Geelong suburbs and mystery cases popping up, at least perhaps for the first time in this whole pandemic, we have a lockdown in Geelong that we can sort of rationalise and come to terms with and justify in our own minds. Well, that's true. And and also, we, we want to be assured and confident it is only a seven-day lockdown. I mean, as you said, and I think other uh, speakers have said tonight today, you know, the government does have history that seven-day lockdowns turn into two or three-week lockdowns, which actually wear everyone down. But I think if it's a seven-day lockdown, uh, we've got no cases today, which is a good sign. If that continues... Uh, and we're able to get more freedoms, more people vaccinated, and look to that November 5th date of 80% uh, double vac, well, you know, I think people will grin and bear it uh, and and put some trust in the government that that's what the rules are and they'll be abided by, complied with, and uh, we'll open up, as, as Daniel Andrews said we would, at the due dates. And just on the point about workers coming in from Melbourne, I just wonder if they have to tighten that a little bit more because, as you say, there was a manager from Coles who came down. And, of course, you wondered just how essential that visit was, but I suppose we'll never know. But when the cases in Melbourne start to go up to 2,000, 3,000 a day, as Daniel Andrews said yesterday, they could, they could pick that number, um, it's going to be very hard to have workers coming down from Melbourne and not at least one of them bringing the virus with them if the cases are at that level, surely. Well, that's true. And I, I think, you know, really the whole push, particularly, well, in all states, but here in Victoria I've noticed more, is is to try and have rules and regulations that almost enforce people to get double vaccinated, except it's really our only course of action uh, to allow full freedom. So um, those people are not compliant. There are plenty of them. We've seen huge amount of traffic's coming out of uh, lockdown Melbourne into regional areas, whether it's for work or whether it's for recreation or whether people just want to get out of town um, and without the ring of steel, of course, or without the uh, ongoing police uh, presence, and I'm sure they're checking number plates, but there's no doubt uh, there's a lot of um, movement between the trades and, you know, you know, see the construction around Geelong. Uh, in Bowen Heads, I've seen there's, you know, painters, plasterers, there's people all sizes and descriptions um, coming in and out of 
the sort of, uh, you know, the highly um, uh, intensive uh, building development areas. And, uh, of course, they'll be coming from Melbourne and other areas. So how you actually monitor that and police that, I don't know. I just think uh, the only course of action we have, which the government is, seems to be seeking, is to encourage, whether it's by a big stick or otherwise, to people to get double vaccinated so we have the most amount of protection possible in the shortest amount of time. And you mentioned the roadmap. I just think much better to have a roadmap, even though some people, like the business lobby, say it's too cautious, but much better to see where we're going to be in October, where we're going to be in November, rather than uh, waiting hour by hour for a decision to be made, which we have done in the past. So I think more transparency about what is guiding the government's decision is welcome. I agree. I think it's probably a bit harsh. I mean, there's a lot of businesses, small businesses in regional areas that can't possibly open, even generate any sort of profit uh, in the sort of small numbers uh, inside particularly uh, to make it viable to open. And I think perhaps um, a bit more work could have been done in respect to how you provide less risk but greater opportunity for small businesses to be able to open and um, carry on business, not a loss. The, the other thing I just want to broach, the, the border controls, I believe, is the greatest downfall in government policy. I cannot understand why people can't home quarantine, particularly uh, when they've got children, you know, interstate, uh, in different schools or uh, people stuck, you know, on the border, um, you know, our grey nomads that have been sitting uh, in parking lots, uh, you know, around the borders for six, eight weeks. I just think that is totally inhuman uh, that we couldn't have facilitated some sort of regulatory approach to uh, having those uh, Victorians return to their state um, safely and not putting other people at risk. just doesn't make sense to me that we couldn't have done something better to facilitate those people coming back to their home state. Well, I just think if people can come in from overseas and go into hotel quarantine, I don't see why you couldn't come in from interstate and do the same thing. Well, I agree. And, um, you know, I think hopefully there'll be some sort of review process that will um, expedite uh, if we have to go through that again. I hope we never do. Um, those people that get stuck in different states or certainly also internationally. We've got a lot of Australians at the moment in, all over the world uh, trying to get home and can't. So, um, you know, I hope we can improve the process to help them get back to their families quicker. Housing development on the Bellarine. Just interested in your thoughts around the whole issue of development on the Bellarine because, as you may have seen, it's a big issue for the candidates that are running who have put their hand up so far for the seat of Karangamite, even though planning might be a state issue. But anyway. Yeah, well, it is. And there's a lot of development going on. And there's a lot of people that want to sort of retain the rural landscapes around the Bellarine. That's why they came to buy and, and live and work and play here. Um but also, I'm still of a view we should be reviewing the local government areas. Uh, Mitchell, I know a couple of candidates are keen to have that debate. Some are not so much in this uh, electoral campaign cycle. But at the end of the day, I think we do need a, an LGA that encompasses the Bellarine Surf Coast that actually has as its principal priorities some of those issues around development and, and preservation of our rural landscapes, which um, are an integral part, the identity of um, our coastal areas. And I'm not convinced the city of Great Geelong, with its sort of quite length and breadth of demographic and topography, is able to do that.
Can I just say the situation that the borough of Queenscliff finds itself in this morning, which is out of lockdown, and the paper pointed out that if you're on one side of Fellows Road in Point Lonsdale, you're in lockdown, on the other side you're not. But uh, those people down in the borough of Queenscliff listening today would think the situation we find ourselves in now, which is free when all of the areas around us are locked down, is probably the greatest argument against amalgamation there is. Well, um, you've got, what, 3,000 of them, uh, 3,100, basically elderly Anglo-Saxons. Yes, they do have a significant amount of uh, their their ratepayers double-vaxxed, which is good. Um, But, uh, look, they might think that, but I think in totality, uh, if you look across the region, uh, it seems ludicrous we have a very small area that uh, has an LGA um, uh, and but has similar interest to uh, those neighbouring LGAs. It's expensive to run. Um, I'm not sure they're being fully and appropriately represented under a small borough, but plenty of other people disagree with me. So, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm not standing for election this year and wanting to run that argument, Mitchell. And uh, just last of all, we'll be talking about the Brownlow count in our sports segment shortly. Did you watch that last night and what did you think? I did. I, I watched the red carpet. I watched the sort of preliminary uh, conversations. I actually thought it was good. I thought it was, you know, it was close. It was seen to be more compact. Uh, Gillan McLaughlin did his best to make it interesting, you know, sort of stuttering and holding Putting in the, the pauses uh, at the right point. Yeah, yeah. the pauses at the appropriate time for those uh, on the leaderboard. I thought that made it more interesting. Um, and, I, you know, I, I like the interviews. I like, you know, the mark of the year and the goal of the year sort of interspersed and a few ex-Brownlow um, medalists sort of being able to have the opportunity just to talk about themselves and what they're doing. Um, and I was in bed watching it on TV, so I felt if I went to sleep, I probably wouldn't miss too much. Uh, that I couldn't read the next day. So I actually enjoyed it and I thought it was well done. Yeah, I mean, it was good to see that the count was very close at the end because I know last year it seemed to be almost a foregone conclusion, whereas at least with this one, there are a number of good players in contention right to the end. I think at the start, they probably had a few more of the things that distracted away from the count and then by about round 15, 16, they actually got down to business and didn't distract too much, which was good because that was when it was getting uh, to the pointy end and people were probably desperate to know who would actually poll in those last few rounds and ultimately win. Yeah, it was great for Port Adelaide, wasn't it, to have Ollie um, Wines winning the Brownlow. First, first winner, um, yeah. Port Adelaide uh, footballer to do that, and I think it was the first time in the Brownlow camp we've had three or four leaders, you know, with the 30 votes and over. Um, no, I thought it was good for football and uh, certainly good for um, the, the sort of preamble to the grand final. I'm just sorry it's not in, uh, in Melbourne at the MCG, which I, I don't think I've barely missed a uh, grand final at the MCG in my... Lifetime as a member there, I've missed a couple, but not many. Mm. Uh, to have it in another state is very disappointing, but I've, hopefully next year. And also a shout out to Brian Cook, if I may, Mitchell. I yes. mean, it's a great honour for him and well done to him. He deserves to have that opportunity to move from a very successful stint at Geelong as CEO to um, working with, as a mentor, I think his his primary purpose is, uh, to build the Carlton Football Club as he, as he did with Geelong and uh, the Eagles. So I wish him well on his new journey and new life uh, with Carlton Football Club. Well, thanks very much for being on the program and we'll talk to you in two weeks and, as we always say, hopefully lockdown free.
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Mitchell, and all the best for your listeners. Thank Stay you. safe. Thank you very much. Former Western Victoria MP Simon Ramsey there. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.